This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Thank you. Morning. I'll put you. Morning. Can I say something real quick? Have a seat. Have a seat. I will say, I'm so happy that your wife is doing better. We were talking backstage about the importance of Scripture. Matthew 8 17 says that Jesus himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and we have reasons to be optimistic when we have the Lord reigning over our lives. At least I would say amen. Eric's going to tell me to sit down and shut up in a second, so let me just say this real quick. My mom is with us today. Mom, stand up real quick here. I just want to say, when, when I think about living my mama's American dream, a woman who works 16-hour days as a nurse's aide, changing bedpans and rolling patients, she's the person who taught me there's dignity in all work. And in America, if you can work, get busy. She taught me that if you're able-bodied, you work. That is a lesson that I will never forget. Thank you for teaching me some of the most valuable lessons. The other lesson she taught me was that sometimes love comes at the end of a switch. <laughs> Thank you, Kinda, for that one, too. My mama taught me that, too. When I was a kid, my mom would say, switch your hand. And, well, with her, we wanted hand. With my dad, we'd prefer the belt. There you go. <laughs> And all God's people said amen. Yes. So first, thank you for coming. Absolutely. I, it's a whirlwind trip. I know you've got a debate coming up. Yes. I just, I want to start with the question for all the people running for president. You've got a, a former president, former vice president, governors, senators. Why should Americans vote for you for president? You know, I think, uh, great question, Eric. The, the, perhaps the most important reason is I think God wastes none of the characteristics he's given us. I was blessed to be bald at 57 years old by the good Lord. And one of the things I say is that the truth of my life disproves the lies of the radical left. I am living proof that the American dream is alive and it is well. And that no matter where you start in this country, if you work hard, work on your character, have strong grit, all things are possible. 
I'm a big believer in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. And when you're a kid growing up in a single parent household, mired in poverty, you look around and you don't see any real reasons to be optimistic about your future. Learning from a mother, the power of work, learning from a mentor that all things are possible. And yes, having a job is good, but creating jobs is better. Having an income, you've done well, but if you can create a profit, you can change your community. Having the ability to look at the left, the far radical left, and say that what I have experienced as a person in this amazing country is in fact proof that the lies that you're selling, that weaponizing race and class whenever you're losing an argument, you can't do that with me. Literally, I find myself in a position where having had a miserable beginning and succeeded as a catalyst for why we should believe that America's best days are still ahead of her. Number one. Number two, my experience as a small business owner allows me to understand the weight that the government puts on your shoulders, whether it's local, state, or federal. If you want to see a chief executive in action, start a small business. And millions and millions of Americans have done so. We know that you yearn for freedom and liberty. You want to have the independence to decide your own path when you're a small business owner. These coming together, a tough start being a small business owner, and then having a chance to provide the American people with the largest tax cut in American history in 2017. It's one of the three primary authors of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Really, I think, makes me qualified to run our economy, be commander-in-chief, as well as allow my life story to disprove the lies of the radical left. One of the very first and most frequently asked questions from the crowd for you is, what was it like to go to The View? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a really good question. (laughs) It was a fascinating experience for them. And it was an interesting experience for me. People think because I'm optimistic and positive that maybe I'm just a nice guy and that's all. The truth is that when you say something that is disgusting, offensive, and undeniably wrong, I'm the guy you don't want to watch. And going on The View to have a conversation about their comments and going toe-to-toe with, with, with Whoopi and the rest of the hosts, unfortunately, Joy uh, Blackface Behar did not decide to show up for the conversation <laughs> she started. I look forward to that kind of conflict because I want to resolve the issue. You don't have to be an exception if you're an African-American to succeed in this world. All you have to do is go as high as your character and your grit and your hard work will take you. That's the truth of where we are as a nation. My grandfather, born in 1921 in segregated South Carolina, he would have had to have been an exception. My mother, never mind when she was born, may have had to be an exception. But I, born in the 19, I didn't want to get in trouble, in the 1960s, our country has evolved so far that listening to the women of The View tell me that I don't know what it means to be black in America. Tell me that you have to be an exception and not just a rule to succeed in this nation. Don't get me fired up about defending the nation I love and the understanding of who I am because of the amazing journey that we've all taken. Remember, you said I won Congress in the place where the Civil War started. In 2010, I ran against Strom Thurmond's son. I'm a black guy, by the way. (laughs) 
<laughs> so think about it. The place where the Civil War starts, I'm in a Republican primary with 90% of the voters who are white. They had a choice between me and the son of Strom Thurmond, a powerful figure in our state. I won because of the evolution of the American heart. People judged me on the content of my character, not the color of my skin. We need to get that right and tell the whole story of American progress. That's why I'm so excited to go on shows like The View or have my, one of my first town halls in a black church in a small town. I want people to understand that conservatism works. It doesn't work for the rich, doesn't work for the poor, doesn't work for the black, it doesn't work for the white. It works for America because we're applying judicial Christian foundations and principles. And when they permeate the soils of our land, the greatest things happen. Related to that, you're the only Republican candidate that former President Obama felt the need to call out. Uh, why do you think that there, he and the left are just so fundamentally threatened by your success? Well, the polls suggest that I'm the best candidate on our side to beat President Biden, number one. Number two, when you are the former President Obama and you're looking at a guy that looks like me talking about the goodness of America and the progress of our nation and the fact that education is the closest thing to magic, and if we are looking at the future of this nation, it's not the color of your skin, but it is the quality of your education. That kind of ruffles the feathers on the left. Their entire identity politics falls apart when we recognize that we've come so far as a nation that our future will be determined by the quality of your education. And if we had school choice in every single zip code, if parents had a choice, the kids would have a chance. That's America's future. They can't hardly stand it. They, they, they do not like the truth spoken on big screens called TVs or little screens called iPads because we've made so much progress as a nation. We should spend less time in the rear view mirror and more time in the big windshield of the future of this nation. And what President Obama sought to do was to drag us back in the past that no longer exists so that we eliminate the future. Let's define and decide the future for ourselves. Let's empower our kids, not with indoctrination, but with education. Let's get back to the good old fashioned A, B, and C, and let's eliminate CRT. Those thoughts ruin the left. So they, they have to attack immediately. Always attacking the infancy of a candidacy. You wanna destroy the kid or the candidacy early on. It's wrong. There's a tie-in there to the abortion issue that I'll just leave aside for a second. Yes. <laughs> the number one issue that this crowd has asked about, so I, I, I told everyone, I gave them a link, you can submit questions. The number one question from people, and this is perfectly in your wheelhouse, given your state and its military pedigree, is military readiness. There is a real concern from people in the room that we're falling behind militarily as a nation as they see what China's doing. I myself was talking to a friend of mine who's involved in some uh, projects for the government who said it, it's remarkable that it can take us six years to build a military fighter and China can steal the plans off our servers and have one produced within a year and our bureaucracy and our military industrial complex seems overwhelmed with red tape now that we can't advance. Yes. Well, we have a significant problem from a military perspective. Perhaps the number one problem that I see coming out of the Biden administration is that too often our men and women in uniform 
are distracted and unfocused because the leadership of this country is experimenting on our military. We have to eliminate all experimentation, whether it's vaccines or ESG or DEI or gender issues. We need to have one focus for our military, and that focus must be lethality. We have to be lethal. That is the focus. If we have a, the fiercest fighting force on God's green earth, go win the war and come back safe. And we are not giving our men and women the focus they need because the leadership is so distracted by all the cultural and social issues that they can't focus on the primary responsibility. Number one. Number two, the procurement process that you just talked about is a massive failure in our military. We, we cannot bring in new competitors in the procurement process because they've been pushed out. We need to get to a place where we have cheaper, more lethal, and more accurate weapons. That means we need to bring in a whole new industrial complex, a part of the conversation that's not happening today. We spend about nine, a little under $900 billion on our military. We need to actually increase our spending in our military. I would simply say that if we cannot engage in conflict, and I hope we don't have to, in three, on three different continents at the exact same time, our military isn't prepared and our leaders aren't thinking that way. Think about where we are as a, a world today. Number one, Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, conflict boiling, NATO territory contiguous with Ukraine, real issues for all of the Western alliance. Number two, the Middle East, our strongest ally, Israel, in the Middle East, the only democracy, is surrounded by about 400 million people some of whom would like them not to be on the earth at all. Having a chance to stand shoulder to shoulder with our allies is necessary. What I've been saying on the campaign trail is that we need to be loyal to our allies and lethal to our adversaries. And then you go to the Indo-Pacific. We all know that the greatest existential threat to America long-term is China. And we have about 11% of our military assets in the Indo-Pacific. We not only need to increase our assets, we need to change our focus. If we're not focusing on catching up with the hypersonic weapon development in both Russia and China, we are falling behind. If we don't have missile defense systems for those two hypersonic weapons being created, we're still falling further behind. If we're not looking at the sixth generation jets, we're falling behind. We've seen for the last several years when I was on the Senate Armed Services Committee, we had the Secretary of Defense come in and he said, we can't defend what we can't see. And on hypersonic weapons, we're not ready. That sent shivers down my spine. 2018, this is five years ago. So our development, our curve is broken. We have to accelerate towards the sixth generation fighters more. F-35s are strong, but we need much more in our pipeline. We need to become more creative and more innovative. That will require us to have a stronger and more diversified military complex. So I've gone back and forth on asking this one question from the crowd. So the aliens. <laughs> Speaking Thank you very much. <laughs> all right. In, in all seriousness, the oh, I was serious. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've 
it seems like, um, and I, I've talked to former Secretary of State Pompeo and I have had this conversation, could it possibly be that some of the, the, the wild reports where he's is, we might actually not be the most technologically proficient nation right now. We may be being played by other nations testing us. Yes, it's possible. Yes. Uh, I, I realize there are yeah. some things you can't say yeah. being in your I've position. I've been in a lot of classified briefings, and, and I will simply say I am clueless on what some have suggested. However, there have been people who say they've been up close and personal, so I, I don't, mm-hmm. I can't, nope, I can't nope. figure it out. Question from the crowd. I figured it, it's transitioned into this technology issue with these other countries that, you know, even the Roman Empire, it, it, the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire seemed to keep it alive when the emperors were at war, and our bureaucracy seems to be snuffing us out when we're not at war. The the overwhelming uh, regulations. So, for example, uh, I, I can give you a very good one. We're in the age of COVID, and if kid gets COVID, they're going to be out of school for days on end until they test negative. And yet the federal education bureaucracy insists you can only miss so many days of school yeah. or else. Uh, we've dealt with this in my family. And in the age of COVID where all the kids did remote learning, can we not like change our absentee policies so kids can study from home? And the bureaucracy just is too complex to deal with even these little issues. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, COVID is a fascinating study looking back now. One of the things I said then is that we should have all been opposed to mandates, number one. Number two, the safest place for a kid, even in the midst of COVID, happened to be this classroom, mm-hmm. not out of clothes. We, we, we locked our kids out of the classroom during COVID and we've basically locked some of those kids out of the brightest future they possibly could have because of the precipitous drop in test scores since COVID. What we also had at the same time was an opportunity to see what was happening for kids who stayed in the classroom during COVID. Many of our Catholic schools were in classroom. Uh, The spread of COVID was lower, actually, from my understanding. It was not higher than those kids that were outside the classroom. In addition to that, the learning continued. So there was no precipitous drop for those kids that were still in the classroom. Now we're going to have to figure out how to make that up as a nation because that will cost us trillions of dollars over the lifetime of the kids that were locked out of the classrooms. But more importantly, this thing called human dignity comes from maximizing your potential. That requires you to get all that you can while you can. That did not happen for too many of our kids in COVID. And finally, I would simply say that the experimentation that I talk about when they say follow the science, they're experimenting. They didn't follow the science. It was 10 days for a mask, then it was five days for a mask. It was not the Wuhan lab, and it is the Wuhan lab. Keep the kids out of school. No, actually, they're better in school. Follow the science? We were lied to by Dr. Fauci. It was devastating, the impact of the lies and the theories, not the science. It's devastating. So if you're president, we've got this massive bureaucracy. And as I understand it, as people are exiting an administration who are political appointees, they can take equivalent jobs inside the civil service. And many Democrats seem to do that. How do you go rooting this stuff out to to try to get the bureaucracy functioning again? Yeah, the the, the biggest thing that we can do to to, to manage and then reduce the size of the bureaucracy is to get the federal government doing tasks only assigned by our Constitution to the federal government. Amen to that. 
In my administration, we would set up a 10th Amendment commission run by a group of governors to start separating what are federal responsibilities and what are not. Let's let the states do what our Constitution says should be left to the states and let the federal government do less work, take less of your money, and have a much smaller workforce. The second thing that we have to do in order to achieve that outcome is for us to focus on what is the biggest problem in the federal workforce, public unions. We have to do battle uh, with our public unions. About 7 or 8% of the private sector is unionized in the federal government. It feels like every single person is a part of the, the federal government unions. What that means is that the President of the United States cannot fire 95% of the people who work for him. That's an issue. In addition to that, uh, we did it, it was, it's, these numbers are four or five years old, but uh, in the IRS, people working full time for the unions cost the American taxpayer about $27 million. Full, they were working on IRS work. They were in the IRS working full time on union work, which means that if we could purge that concept out of the workforce doing union work, on your government payroll, do it on your own time at the very least, we would reduce the size of government. And then we need to break up the bureaucracy in Washington. Literally, there's some agencies that we may have a conversation about eliminating, but we should take the bureaucracy and send it around the country. Why not take the energy department and send it to Tennessee? Why does it have to be housed in Washington? I think if we were to get the Potomac fever, if you want to break the Potomac fever, get these agencies back to the American people. I, I, I literally think we would have a smaller, less intrusive government if everything wasn't concentrated in Washington and then insulated. When six out of the 10 wealthiest counties in the country are surrounding Washington, D.C., it means the rest of the country is paying the price for having those counties have that kind of wealth because of the concentration of power and resources and the decision making. You know, it's funny you bring this up. So Patrick Ruffini, pollster, um, put up a, a chart the other day on on Twitter, and I've never had seen this before. It, the wealthiest census tracts in America. There is an unbroken chain of the wealthiest census tracts in America from northern Virginia to Boston, a greater unbroken chain than anywhere else in the country, including southern California, e anywhere in the country. And it seems like that's where so much of the policy of the country gets made, and yet those people aren't feeling the economy. You turn on TV, everyone says the economy's great. You go to your local grocery store, you know it's not. Well, the average American family has lost $10,000 of spending power because of Bidenomics. When your gas is 40% higher, and your food is 20% higher, and your electricity costs you an extra $2,000 a year, a single mom like the one that raised me or, or a senior on a fixed income, that's called a crisis. Washington doesn't understand that. They're so insulated. When, all the, when, you, when, when the government under President Biden sets its budget to spend 40% more than they take in, it tells you that you're living in an unreal place. It's, 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 it's an illusion. How many of you all would plan, if you made $50,000 a year, would you spend $70,000 a year and send that bill to your kids? Yeah, I actually would, by the way. My, <laughs> my kids would. <laughs> yeah. 
she's sitting right there. She's yes. going to be an engineer. I, I was going to say, as an asterisk, some of you guys don't like your kids, so maybe you would. <laughs> now I know who they are. Young ladies, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You, you're used to this, okay? I'll talk with Eric off stage and we'll figure this out. But in America, we bring in $4.8 trillion of revenues. And President Biden has decided this year he's going to spend $7 trillion. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's just wrong. And we have to have a president who understands you don't print and spend trillions of dollars leading to 16% inflation and then do a tour of the nation talking about how good your economic policies have been. We just saw a 20-year high in the price of the average mortgage breaking 7%. It's devastating first-time homeowners, devastating our economy, and the Federal Reserve had 12, I think it is now, consecutive rate increases trying to push down the inflationary effects in the economy, leading to some instability in our banking system. That's why the FITs and the rating agencies have been downgrading and anticipating more downgrades of our country and of our banking system. Why? The acceleration of, of inflation leading to the Federal Reserve having 12 rate increases has created congestion and challenges in our system, so much so that now banks are going to have to put more money on the sidelines, fewer dollars alone, fewer mortgages, fewer small businesses, less access to capital, which then stymies your long-term economy. The economic activity that will be impacted will happen in late 23 and 24 and 25. We've not even seen the worst of it all yet. I want to talk to you about this from a little bit of a different perspective because I got a question from the crowd on this, is the very first reaction after Silicon Valley Bank failed from the national regulators and the Treasury Department was, we won't do this sort of thing to the regional banks. And after a lot of outrage, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll take care of the regional banks as well. Uh, there does seem to be this real divide. We have these huge national banks, City, City, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Then we have great regional banks around the country that are helping farmers and they're helping small businesses that Washington doesn't seem to want to treat them like the big guys. Yeah, I, I will say, simply say that one of the failures of the FDIC and the Fed on Thursday, March the 10th, I think it was, or March the 9th, when SVB started to go belly up, was their inaction was costly to the tune of over $20 billion to everyday Americans. It's the amount of money that will be fed through the system to pay for the failures of the Silicon Valley Bank failure. What we ought to realize is that SVB was not a regional bank. People call it a regional bank because of its size. It was a very complex, layered commercial bank disguised as a regional bank. Most of our regional banks are really healthy. The truth is that Silicon Valley Bank had 94% or more of their deposits uninsured. Your average regional bank has about 70% of the deposits insured. So it was an anomaly and they, did all, they were so concentrated in the Silicon Valley Bank area, in, in Silicon Valley, that it was just a, a very bad situation made worse by the amount of their deposits uninsured. But that is an anomaly as it relates to our regional banks. Our regional banks are strong. 
Unfortunately, what the, what the regulators and supervisors decided was to not sell most of the assets in First Republic or SVB to smaller banks. First Citizen bought SVB, which was, which was overall good, but they sent First Republic's assets to J.P. Morgan. And so what they did was they made too big to fail, so to speak, even bigger. They refused to open up the opportunities for other players to come in and make bids on the banks that were failing. And if they had done that initially on Friday after March 9th, March 10th, we could have perhaps saved the American taxpayers who, frankly, are the ones going to ultimately end up paying this price on this, $20 billion. Wow. Let me shift gears just a little bit, but you and I have had this conversation privately and I have with your staff. I'm increasingly aware of businesses, particularly in the gun industry, that national banks and even some regional banks just shut down their bank accounts yeah. and send them a check back because uh, they don't want to do business with them. And it seems like progressives in particular are using private sector insurance regulators, insurance banks to push aside those sorts of entities they don't like, particularly in the gun industry. What can or should Congress be looking at for that? Yeah, what I've said to federal regulators, and this is a really interesting issue, especially for the state of Georgia. What we saw during the Georgia state law, when the voting laws were being changed, if you guys recall, Joe Biden said that changing the Georgia election laws was going to be Jim Crow 2.0 and that they were going to stop poor black folks from being able to vote and they were going to discriminate against poor counties. And the reality of it is that at the end of the election, what we saw was 0% African-American complaints about the election, the highest turnout. And Republicans, we still won almost all the statewide seats except for the seat for the Senate. So what we saw was voter integrity increased while we did the right thing. I brought that up for this reason, because Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Four of our major banks, along with Delta Airlines and lots of Coca-Cola and businesses came out and said, we are going to oppose that law because it's just bad and evil. And I had a, I'm the leading Republican on the banking committee. And that's why I sound so boring when I'm talking about all this banking policy. But uh, <laughs> I apologize for that. The, the, well, I had those four major banks in front of me and, and I asked the question, what part of the Georgia law are you guys opposed to? And for 60 seconds in the middle of a hearing, not a soul said a word <laughs> because they hadn't read the Georgia law. They had no clue what was going on. And then I said, you're going to take a stand against a law you don't know, but you're willing to unbank legal entities, legal businesses, because you don't like them, which is the, or the gun industries, gun industry and the oil and gas industry. These are two legal industries that banks are saying we're not going to bank. I've suggested that if you're going to tell us what you're going to bank and what you're not going to bank, we should have a conversation about your federal support of your, of your industry. If the FDIC allows you to be in business, you don't get to choose which legal businesses you are going to bank. You're going to bank all legal businesses Period. And that would solve the problem. All right. Before you get off stage here, we've got about 15 minutes left. I, I want to talk to you about the presidential campaign. First of all, I mean, what's it like to be on the campaign trail, 
going state to state, having to shake hands, not just in South Carolina, you got Iowa, New Hampshire, you got your home state. It's got to be grueling. It is one of the most exciting ventures someone can undertake. It's a nice way of saying it. (laughs) it. It is a lot of work without any question, but it is worth it. When you have an opportunity to leave your home and, and spend five or six days on the road as I've just finished. I went to the uh, Iowa State Fair on Tuesday and had a fair side chat with Governor Reynolds with three or 400 people out there with us. It was a blast having a chance to talk about why I believe America can do for anyone. What she's done for me is a blessing from God himself and the people of South Carolina that's allowed me to be a United States Senator and therefore a presidential candidate. I shouldn't be on any stage in our country having a conversation about almost anything based on where I'm from. But because we're Americans, we can do the most remarkable things because I believe and understand American exceptionalism. When we focus on that, when I'm on the campaign trail having a conversation about the challenges that we face from a military standpoint, from an economic standpoint, I am thanking God that I had a chance to live the whole story of who we are as a nation. I thank God that I'm in a place now where we can fight for the next American century. That is worth everything. And I will say that The way I have run my campaign, will continue to run our campaign, is by putting the mission ahead of the position. Our mission is to restore hope and create opportunities because it was afforded me by a great Chick-fil-A mentor, a guy named John Moniz, and my mother, who's here with us today. That combination of Americans coming together to form a foundation so that I could literally experience that Ephesians 3.20, God doing exceedingly abundantly above all that I ask or imagine. Having that opportunity and going on the campaign trail to help us remember that the best is yet to come, that all hope is not gone. Katie, bar the door. This is a lot of fun. Perfect. All right. So last question for you here. Maybe. We, we got a few minutes left. I, I have been meditating on my radio show about the, the old Donald Rumsfeld quote about the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. And it seems like the world is evolving so fast. We have these series of coups in West Africa that seem to keep happening with the rise of Islamic terrorists, the the Wagner uh, mercenaries there. I can't ask you, obviously, about the unknown unknowns because we don't know we don't know them. But where should we be looking in the world today, you think, home or abroad, to try to figure out what we don't know we don't know? Yeah, that's a great question and and an interesting one. What you just described is the terrorism and the coups that are growing in the Sahel of Africa. Really important region as it relates to what we can anticipate in 5, 10, and 15 years is terrorism maybe finding a a new place to germinate in in a powerful way. One of the most important weapons that we have for good that I think we are overlooking is the importance of our energy economy. 
A part of the answer that we have for the challenges that we could be facing around the world comes to America's energy independence. And let me put some skin on the bones for, for that, especially when you think about the, the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. One of the solutions to it all is providing our resources across the globe. In Africa, you have 950 million people. In China, over 1.3 billion people. Uh, in India, more than they have in China. So we have over 3 billion people in this area of the world. And probably 80% aggregate still live in abject poverty. And so they're burning for energy dung and wood, two major carcinogenics. In America, we have the greatest, strongest reserve of oil, gas, and coal. If we were exporting our energy around the world, we'd create millions of high-paying American jobs. And at the same time, we'd start solving problems in regions like the Sahel and around the world where they are energy starved. When we give kids and families hope because of our energy exploration, I believe we start stabilizing parts of the world. Now, in Africa, certainly they have a ton of energy as well. Part of the challenge is there's so much corruption that getting the average person to benefit from it is really high. And so we have to not only export our energy, we have to export an opportunity to stabilize economies around the world. And when you look in our back, back door, basically, you see China and Russia are doing in Africa the same thing they're trying to do in South America, which is to sow seeds that will germinate over a lifetime and have real power and control in our backyard. You've all read about China developing secret bases in Cuba. You've seen Iran coming into Brazil and having some meetings earlier this year. You, you see the instability that's happening in Venezuela where uh, inflation has been as high as a thousand percent, which then floods people into Colombia, which then sees the governments go further and further to the left and not to the right. All of that consternation and confusion creates a wide open field for Russia and China to bring resources into our backyard and take advantage of folks in the same fashion that they're doing in Africa as well as the Middle East. We have to have the resources and the stability in our own economy to weather these storms. I have something that I would institute as president called Made in America, which is a plan to create 10 million new jobs many of those jobs in the, in, in the energy industry that we could export and then stabilize the world by having American leadership strong, clear, and forward-looking, helping to bring stability to hotbeds around this world. It will keep our American soldiers safer. It will create millions of American jobs. It will promote and encourage the kind of leadership that the world's missing today. I keep telling folks, it is not the strength of dictators, whether it's Putin or Xi, it's the weakness of the American president that causes consternation and instability around the world. Polling doesn't suggest it, but if you, if you just are hyper online, there is this real growing strain of isolationism on our side. Yes. Hearing you talk about that, and we look at, at the situation in Ukraine, for example, the growing voices on our side very loudly against 
supporting Ukraine against Russia. Uh, how do you push back on that issue for uh, a robust American presence in the world? Well, one of the things that you, you have to say is that President Biden once again has failed the American people to articulate what is America's national vital interest in the conflict in Ukraine. America's national vital interest is in degrading the Russian military. Tomorrow's greatest threat, the existential threat that we will face is China. Today, up until the degrading, the degradation of the Russian military, the greatest military threat to our country was Russia. We have been successfully degrading their, their military with our resources and the very high price of Ukrainian blood. That combination has made our homeland safer and almost as important. It is the most effective way of us keeping our troops off the ground in Eastern Europe because Ukraine is surrounded by NATO territory. And Article 5 of our NATO agreement says, one for all and all for one. If we want to make sure that our military never has to step uh, on the soil in Eastern Europe, let's degrade the Russian military so they do not attack NATO territory, which is in America's vital national best interest. Number one. Number two, what we see happening there is a precursor for what we could see between China and Taiwan. And so when you start thinking about this globally, even if you are more of a protectionist, the most important thing to do to protect American soldiers and our sovereign territory is to make sure that our adversaries are degraded without the use of our, our military. Final thing I'd say is President Biden has done a miserable job of having accountability in the resources that we send over to Ukraine. We need a president who not only supports a fast conclusion, but someone who understands the importance of accountability to the American people with your dollars. There are no federal dollars. There are only tax dollars, and they're yours. And so we serve you. Therefore, we should give you a whole accounting on how your dollars are being spent. And that has not happened under this president. And, and finally, I would simply say that when you look at the failure of President Biden, first in the engagement initially, he drug his feet for a long time. We literally followed Germany to, be a, uh, uh, to assistance to, for <laughs> Ukraine. And then he made promises on, on equipment and weaponry that we still haven't delivered because of the challenge that we have in our supply chain. And then finally, we should never, ever hear an American president go on a screen and say, we're out of ammunition. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I was so embarrassed to see the American president share sensitive information not only with the American people, but with the world. We have to have a president who respects our nation and our military and never runs out of weapons and never runs out of ammunition. That's called common sense. Unbelievable for us. Okay, so it, let me wrap this up first. I haven't even commented on your socks. I'm, I'm up oh. here jealous. <laughs> Great sock game there. Um, well done. Um, I love the shoes, by the way. You know, long story on these. Okay. Like, I've been admiring yours. All right. I just, I, I, I am, and we've talked about the pyramid issue, but 
the fact that you do have the military, you got the president, I mean, telling the world, we can't make enough missiles, we, we can't make enough ammunition. How does this happen? We elected the wrong guy. <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's time. It's, it's, it is. Here, here's my, my wrap-up. It's time to fire Joe Biden. It is time to fire Merrick Garland. And it's time to fire Christopher Ray. We need to clean out the entire DOJ. We need to clean out the White House staff. We need to clean out all the political appointees so that we can restore confidence and integrity for the American people in the Department of Justice because Lady Justice needs a blindfold, number one. Number two, we restore confidence and we get rid of the problems and the confusion that we're seeing from President Biden by having a president who can walk and chew gum at the same time. Fun not intended, fun not intended. <laughs> but now that we're there, listen, part of the problem that we're having with the American people having confidence in our government is that when we talk about Ukraine, it is frustrating that we have not seen action on America's greatest national security risk, which happens today to be our southern border. We need a president who recognizes that the southern border that has led to 70,000 Americans losing their lives in the last 12 months because of fentanyl, the precursor coming from China, developed in Mexican labs, and then the cartels bringing it across our southern border and ports of entry. If we had a president who closed our southern border for less than $10 billion, we finished the wall. And for $5 billion, we used the available military-grade technology to spot and detect human trafficking and fentanyl. We could close our southern border and stop 6 million illegal crossings and 200 folks on our security watch list from coming over and trying to devastate this nation. If we had a commander-in-chief who could focus on Eastern Europe, Middle East, Indo-Pacific, and the Sahel of Africa, but always knew that the primary responsibility is to first secure the sovereign borders of the most powerful force for good called America. If we started there, the American people would have more confidence in their commander in chief. Thank you for spending time with me. Yes, sir. Thank you for doing this. Good luck at the debate this Thank coming you. week. Um, I just, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I pray for you. Thank you. And I will keep praying for you. And thanks for having your mom here as well. Senator Tim Scott. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.